Hey folks, welcome to the Years of Lead Pod. I'm Alexander Reed Ross, and I had the wonderful opportunity recently to interview Dr. David Broder, author and translator of a number of important texts on Italian politics and history. We had a far-ranging conversation covering his forthcoming book, Mussolini's Grandchildren about the rise of the Fratelli d'Italia, the factionalism of the Italian Communist Party, and the emergence of the historic compromise. You can get the full hour and 45 minute interview for a dollar or whatever at the Patreon, but for these purposes, I'm going to publish some excerpts of our conversation that specifically pertain to the development of the historic compromise in 1973, because it's the most relevant to our current storyline. The official story is basically that the historic compromise, which was the Communist Party's renewed effort to be a full participant in the Italian parliamentary system, came about as a result of the Pinochet coup against a democratically elected government of Chile's Marxist president, Salvador Allende, in September of 1973. The coup indicated to then-Communist Party leader Enrico Berlinguer that the party needed a fresh approach to get the favor of a larger consensus of the Italian population in order to prevent a social alignment favorable to fascism and a potential coup. However, Broder gives us a richer backstory, showing a communist party rife with factions and tensions over the prevailing desire to play a critical role in reformist electoral politics going back to 1944. The party's post-war leader, Palmero Togliatti, embarked on the so-called Turn to Salerno, where the National Liberation Committee had based an advanced effort to collaborate in an anti-fascist movement. Despite opposing factions, Togliatti determined to extend the party's influence throughout the whole country rather than just the north, and to make huge concessions to a unity government rather than launch a revolutionary power grab. Broder discusses the different factions, especially that of the Stalinist, some say rightist, insurrectionary and former partisan Pietro Secchia, the social democratic reformist Giorgio Amendola, the leftist leader, Pietro Ingrao, and the breakaway faction closer to Ingrao called Il Manifesto. Amid the tensions between factions, Broder shows how the liberalizer, Enrico Berlinguer, a Sardinian from the younger generation who takes over the party in 1972, attempted to develop the historic compromise as a continuation of Togliatti's turn to Salerno and an evolution of center-left politics that gained a foothold in Italian politics with the ascension of the coalition between the Socialist Party and the Aldo Moro faction of the Christian Democrats in 1963. He then breaks down the major events that converged in 1973 to point the way to a historic compromise. These are the coup in Chile, of course, the generational changing of the guard, the Euro-Communist turn, the party's transition to counter-terrorism, and the economic crisis. Taken together, these five different causes and consequences brought the Communist Party closer to the state and further from the extra-parliamentary left, alienating those who had believed in the insurrectionary legacy of the resistance with efforts to develop a government of national solidarity in opposition to terror. Broder shows how the ambition to unite the country and elevate the party 
ultimately wedded the communists to the state's response to economic crisis, bringing it closer to the politics of neoliberal austerity taking shape in the late 70s and fundamentally shaking the party's very reason for existence. So, without further ado, enjoy the interview. We begin with the Communist Party's complex composition at the end of the resistance. Okay, so because this is complicated and I want to get the full picture because it's not quite a spectrum of left and right, but sort of a, a patchwork of different tendencies. We've got Berlin Guer, who was who raised in a family that was very um, favorable to Italian unification and liberal nationalism. So Mazzini, Garibaldi, the history of Italian liberalism, and their Sardinian aristocracy. Uh, mm -hmm. During the resistance, he sort of gets this youth group together and they talk about Marx and, and read Stalin and stuff like that. Um, and he manages to do it without being totally suppressed by the fascist regime, uh, which impresses Togliatti, who comes back from the Soviet Union and, and takes up the head of the party with the support of people like Luigi Longo, who's in my read a kind of a centrist in the party although a former partisan and maybe the guy who killed Mussolini um <laughs> and uh and so then you have so right so you have Secchia who we'll call we'll call okay maybe the right wing of the party because he's more Stalinist authoritarian down the line but he's mm -hmm. also insurrectionary he is a, a former partisan and a and a guy who wants to overthrow capitalism now Right. Um, and he also has a parallel power structure that's pretty much, uh, some people said, as strong as Togliatti himself within the party. Yeah, because the, the idea, the, the basic myth of Secchia is that he could have replaced uh, Togliatti had the crisis of the common form after World War II led the uh, led Stalin and the Soviet Union to uh, seek a more confrontational path in Italy. So, like, um, so Secchia during the resistance is um, more in favor of the idea of replacing the institutions of the Italian state with like CLN, with National Liberation Committee, like direct organs of of like the, the actual structure of the resistance should therefore produce the new state. Um, so the kind of contradiction that, and a little typical of the way the power was handled in the um, PCI, is that Secchia writes uh, one of the most important uh, articles in which the PCI condemns leftist impatience. Mm -hmm. And La Nostra Lotta, which is like the, was the PCI's clandestine uh, journal in uh, Milan. And the article is called Leftism, the Gestapo's Mask. And in the article, he explains that uh, dividing the forces of the Italian people with ultra-left phraseology, with revolutionary ambitions and so on, is in fact what the Nazis want because it would discredit the resistance. There certainly were some um, fake uh, left groups set up by the Nazis. So in Rome, there was one called Spartaco, 
which uh, is is like uh, is kind of comical because they have a copy of it in the Resistance Museum in Rome, but but it's actually a Nazi publication, uh, and uh, one of the reasons you can tell is it's very high print quality. The fact that it's like <laughs> color and stuff like this, uh, unusual for clandestine publication, let's say. But no, I mean, I mean, um, Stella Rossa was actually quite a uh, strong uh, force in Turin. It had probably about a thousand people in the factory, certainly at the uh, end of '43. Um, but most of its members ended up in the PCI. Um, there's some uh, exchange between it and there's a group in Milan led by Carlo Venegoni, uh, which was called the Organizzazione Comunista Autonoma in the mm-hmm. kind of northern parts of Milan. They had some contact with Stella Rossa, but then they broke it off because they were suspicious of Vaccarella, and Vaccarella was then killed So, uh, in like, April 44. So Vaccarella gets gets offed by um, the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they killed they killed some left comms as well. But um, yeah, but Secchi's article is very violent because it also attacks the group in Milan led by Lelio Basso, who was uh, became one of the more important figures in the left wing of the Socialist Party. Uh, for example, Basso is probably the most important introducer of the works of Rosa Luxemburg in Italy, and he had a paper in Milan called uh, Bandiera Rossa. Ah, so this is also kind of something you would see in, in like, uh, is it not Lenin's um, left-wing communism is an infantile disorder or something of that nature? Mm-hmm. Right, so Sakia kind of takes the Stalinist approach, uh, denouncing left-wing communism as uh, something that helps the Nazis. And yeah. he has, and he freights in a lot of the kind of historical. Really, he, he doesn't just say it helps the Nazis. He really says it's a Nazi organized provocation. I see. Yeah, which is sometimes the case, but not all the time. <laughs> According to Italian history, on occasion there was a tendency for some counter information uh, to creep in from the left against the Communist Party. Uh, mm-hmm. But there was also genuine left-wing opposition within and against the Communist Party. Yeah, because uh, there, from were the, of, there were a lot of frustrations with the, um, you know, with the strategy the party adopted during the resistance. Because, you know, I mean, um, and often actually this is misrepresented as opposition to the Salerno turn specifically. But really, it arises earlier, and it's more to do with the initial genesis of the. Uh, of resistance groups from September 43, because at first the Communist Party really lacks a sort of, um, let's say, a kind of centralized structure, which is able to like have a presence across the national territory, right? So in some locations, the people who take initiative in recreating the Communist Party will actually find that they don't share the political line of the real leadership of the party. And there's mm. a kind of process where uh, some of these groups are pretty unwilling to accept the, the the line they're hearing from various local cadres and so on. Often people returning from exile who they've never heard of uh, is really the official line, which is also mm. why some of the uh, opposition dissident groups, uh, in fact, all of the most important ones, actually call, like see themselves as uh, loyal to like Stalin. 
Right. So first, there yeah. Aren't any, there aren't any uh, clandestine Trotskyist uh, groups. Um, so, um, so some of them are more like kind of um, are on other positions, basically less in the kind of common turn tradition. But yeah, so the the really the 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 within the resistance, the most important. Uh, uh, political, like in, in insofar as it's like becomes a theorized difference rather than just a difference of like approach to the uh, the sort of actual means of struggle. Uh, there's more or less le um, radical positions which accept, which all accept a certain vision of like the Soviet Union as the center of the world revolutionary movement and so on. I mean, of course, thinking even in cases like Greece and Yugoslavia as well, it, it's not necessarily clear before the end of the war like to what extent like the soviet union does indeed have like a worked out strategy for like what you know the division of europe and this kind of thing um so yeah so um but yeah there's there's the sense that um Sekia, because also because before toliati returns and does this for uh, salerno turn there's a debate within the uh cadres who are on italian soil on which he is uh, more hostile to the idea of do doing what would eventually become the Salerno turn. So he's more hostile to the idea of um, unity with the former monarch, sorry, with the monarchists and former fascists and so on, um, who make up the exist, who lead the existing uh, state machine. So, uh, of course, when Toliati comes back, the debate is over um, in March, uh, at the end of March 1944. Uh, but yeah, so Sekia is certainly seen as someone who, who would have favored a more aggressive uh, approach. Right. And I, I mean, even the Berlinguer liberalizing arm, I don't want to, you know, make it seem like that was just, you know, a bunch of liberals to start with who were uncomfortable with Marx. I mean, Berlinguer was pretty, pretty intensely supportive of Stalin in the early fifties. Uh, uh, they would go to Russia and they would have visits with the youth group and it was almost like obligatory. Um, and they would go do all the festival circuit, right? They, I think you're a, you, you know, a lot about these festivals. That yeah. These, he was a leader of the world federation of democratic youth, which is the common of uh, the home form and onwards youth organization. So, yeah, I mean, that's really uh, um, fascinating. Like culturally, the Communist Party with Berlinguer in the in the driver's seat of the youth uh, federation um, is 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 fairly homogenous in a sense. Like they, they at least from the top down, they try to be pretty homogenous. Um, but you have all of these political sort of disputes um which go back to the resistance and are bloody and so Toliati's in the center trying to keep all the acrimony down and i think mm -hmm. the the cultural aspects the festivals the music the the whole sort of um it's almost like an alternative world like the whole phenomenon of the communist party is a sense of belonging a family almost um is is kind of the the way that i think the post-war left tries to keep all of the factions from tearing each other limb from limb 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things, I mean, when you say that Berlinguer is more liberal, part of that, of course, is a uh, generational thing yeah. in the sense that, of course, you know, there aren't like fixed generations where one clearly follows the other. But of course, you know, Berlinguer was only um, uh, 22, 23 at the time of the resistance. So, you know, he's not someone who's been through the the exile experience, which is where, of course, the like the high Stalinist purges take place. You know, people like, for example, you know, Longo and Toliati, they were in, you know, they were involved in like the, the execution of oppositional communists in the Spanish Civil War. Or like say, even someone like say a Mendele is like more liberal in the sense that he's more reformist in his general orientation, but who had like, you know, defended the party line during like the Hitler-Stalin pact. So the people who come to political consciousness in the resistance period and its uh, immediate aftermath just have a different uh, relation to uh, the the party because, because in the sense that they're not being asked to do those things to the same extreme degree. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and of course, you know, I mean, um, when, um, when, uh, yeah, you mentioned Luigi Longo, I mean, when Luigi Longo was the secretary of the party, uh, he was a pretty old man the last couple of years, basically Berlingue more or less was his kind of almost like a regent, mm. uh, figure because, you know, Longo was someone who, albeit a relative, you know, pretty young age had been attended like the the you know the uh i think the fourth congress of the Comintern. you know he was someone who'd been there like the whole way through yeah you know, he joined the party in 1921 so berlinguer represents berlinguer himself is a generational shift because it's actually the first generation of leaders who aren't from the from 1921 mm -hmm. um but also uh because he brings up a lot of new uh cadres with him uh who are even younger but but who are you know the generation that's um like not lived through the war and resistance and who have only known communist party as already like a a mass party in democratic um conditions so obviously you know for example uh, under berlinguer's tenure uh, massimo d'alema becomes the leader of the the youth um so you know someone who really hadn't really been involved even in mass organizing of any kind and like obviously with retrospect we can see that people like dilemma uh you know in, it, now it's easy to see them as the you know the uh the the people who destroyed the tradition of the uh, italian communist party and to impute it to those origins so the story has many more mediations and so on but but yeah i mean it, it's it's important in general in understanding the the life of the italian communist party that there are these um sort of changing of the guard which and they that they've had different uh different experiences and they and that's part of why they kind of struggle to keep alive the uh the party of the resistance period yeah yeah very much so and i think that this is really interesting i think there are two things there that are i kind of want to pick up on the first is like the 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 weird kind of I don't even know if this is a word, but 
a lability, like the labile, the changing nature, the dynamism of Italian politics as personal relationships and and loyalties and um, kind of traversing different um, boundaries. When you look at uh, Secchia, who fell from grace because his personal secretary mm-hmm. made off with all the money that the communists and documents of the communist party. Um, and, and so that sort of like broke his credibility mm-hmm. and, and he was relegated to um, Milan. Um, but after that, I think he, uh, he struck up a, a big, you know, relationship with Feltrinelli um mm-hmm. and um after 56 in particular Feltrinelli and Secchia kind of posed this puzzling um insurrectionary position with one foot in the party and one foot in the extra parliamentary left um but Feltrinelli was not a stalinist and he left the party because of 1956 but he, but for some reason Secchia was his guy. And I guess it's just the militancy of it that really attracted, you know, Feltrinelli. Secchia is kind of a legit partisan, whereas Feltrinelli had gone into the resistance, but also was quite young and and was just Mm -hmm. like a a regular, you know. Um, So, yeah, that's one of the weird things. And then the second thing is that uh, Berlinguer's generation, I think for him, was particularly identified, you know, among these other figures with Rosano Rosanda and Pintor and, and the Il Manifesto group that uh, that ends up breaking away from the party. And and they were really, I think, the part of the left-wing faction. So we, we talked about Amendola with his social democracy. We talk about um, Secchia as a right-wing of the party who ends up kind of in this weird insurrectionary uh, area. And then we have to talk about the uh, left wing of the party, right? Which if I'm not mistaken, I would put with with uh, Ingrao, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a, I'm not sure I'd agree with the left-right characterization of Secchia because I think that right. he, he, it's a different kind of, it's like the left is it's like the left, but from a previous era. So what's mm. different between is is it's like a left version of Soviet orthodoxy. Mm. Whereas yeah. what's different with the manifesto group is it much more represents a kind of um a, a cultural moment. That sounds a bit weak saying cultural, but I mean I think it's like it it, it it's less uh, socially conservative. It's more open to new demands. It's more with the movements of the '60s. It's more, um, you know, of course, um, you know, Rosanda had, you know, for instance, had uh, participated in the resistance and Castellina uh, joined some. Pintor. Sorry, and Pintor. And Pintor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, but they're, you know, they're they're still, um, you know, much. Firstly, much younger than uh, Secchio, mm-hmm. and but also like you know they are, um, you know they're obviously of course more marked by you know the doubts over fifty six and then the uh, the taking sixty eight not just as something uh, sorry taking the crushing of the Prague Spring not just as something that the PCI should distance itself from but something which like very fundamentally questions 
the tradition of the party at the same time when in Italy you're having this resurgence of uh of of um forms which seem outside the party's control and influence uh so for, uh, importantly including of course things like the debate on uh, factory councils mm-hmm. which comes up in 68 69 mm-hmm. um and which so you know the manifesto group of much more, um, but not only, but the manifesto group certainly uh, stake their identity on wanting to relate to the movements. And Grau also says mm-hmm. he wants to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there's also the um, the background to this is the debate over the uh, the so-called debate on the tendencies of Italian capitalism. So you have this famous mm-hmm. uh, seminar in 62 and then the debate at the 11th Congress of the party where the then dominant line of the Amendola side is this idea of like um, the backwardness of Italian capitalism and the need for so-called democratic programming to overcome it. So this idea of Mm. parties role in capitalist modernization of Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like kind of as you know, rather than support just corporatist wage demands we need like a program of you know modernity and this actually of course some of its themes actually seem more inspired by like gaulism uh, than by <laughs> marxism or even keynesianism um so this is a part of the background in grau is on the opposite side to amendola um and is more receptive to the new movements of the late 60s but he still disagree- he disagrees quite a lot still with the manifesto group you know they look to him as a kind of um 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 how would you say it? a sort of um um a figure who they a reference point within the you know the central committee but then he also has a quite different approach in the sense that uh he's he's kind of wary of allowing the developments of the uh so 68 period to weigh too heavily on the overall party strategy so right. somehow the movements need to be like integrated um but then you know the party shouldn't fall on kind of like councilist or workerist type positions right so he he still has this perspective of like you know broad democratic alliances and so on and is and is concerned that the the more revolutionary sort of impulses of, of the 68 period uh, are um are, are going to trouble that so he he has a you know he's and also i mean it has to be said um sometimes when we talk about the the pci and this idea of like listening to young people and the movements and so on mm. it's kind of important to understand like what the, you know, just how conservative the position that when people said that what they were opposing was very conservative and austere like for example um mm-hmm. we published an article on jacobin about the italian reception of the film uh, saturday night fever yeah and like really like when disco started to emerge as a phenomenon uh-huh. in communist party cultural journals it was like condemned <laughs> yes awesome. so so you know that's a it might might seem a trivial example, but it's part of the way in which you know the 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 life world of the party. Obviously, it, you know it, it. You know if we think of things like you know the festivals and the uh, music and the mm-hmm. and the 
children's comics produced by the party. Uh, yeah, uh, they're <laughs> bad. They're pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so it sounds attractive, like, oh, yeah, they were, in, were active in all these fields. But then actually what they produced could actually be quite... Um, conservative and actually uh you know unattractive but you know it's, it's also important not to see the party as as monolithic and what the manifesto debate really brings out is the question of of fractions and factionalism because in the communist party you do have these different elements you have who are different uh and contradictory ideas of the party tradition often in fact of course investing the same symbols and words mm-hmm with different ideas mm-hmm. and this is of course the contradiction of a party which while in its practice might seem uh reformist and talk about things like democratic programming and the modernization of capitalism and so on but also is a party which is in effect reborn in armed struggle whose many of whose leading members are veterans of armed struggle and which at least formally attaches itself to the legacy of 1917. Mm. And that's why we have this typical theme in the history of the Italian Communist Party of doppiezza, the idea of the ruse, the double strategy, the idea of pivoting between reformist and revolutionary agendas and so on, mm. which, although not really a strategy followed by party leaders, remains in really important to kind of militant myth and the kind of self-conception of uh, communist militants. So it seems like you have this generational split in the Communist Party, which gets tied up in the cultural politics of the youth in a time of advanced labor militancy that flies out of the control of the party. And the party has to pull the reins back on its own rank and file, which sort of puts the lie to the whole question of Dopiezza and shows that the party no longer really maintains the political will to uphold anything but a compromising and reformist position. So with militancy out of the door and their relevance among the youth in question, the party's return to a historic compromise of the sort um, seemed all but a foregone conclusion in a sense, although whether or not they'd find a partner among the Christian democracy seemed equally questionable. It's actually interesting when we talk about the historic compromise because, of course, it's kind of normal that we would talk about it from the side of the Communist Party, right? That, that seems to be the main agent in the situation but really of course the um it, it's a dilemma posed uh, as i'm sure we'll discuss in christian democracy and part of the impetus for the historic compromise in the christian democracy is precisely the fact that the catholic youth groups are unable to intercept the demands of 68 mm. Like they're shedding support and influence as well. And this is why even in like 68, um, out of tomorrow, I think it's November 68, there's like a a, a, a party council meeting of the of the uh, of the Christian democracy. And Aldo Moro starts to speak this language of this like profound, uh, p- profound desire for renewal mm. in society and how that can't be channeled into like a disruptive protest but needs to be used to like reform uh the the italian state and italian democracy and and that's you know of course there's been some center-left governments already uh before then but but that's why he starts to talk about the so-called strategy of of attention so not strategy of tension but strategy mm. of attention towards the communist party which is that he sees the not necessarily bringing the communist party into government 
but rather a, a, a more gradual process of opening towards them as a way of um, as a way of um, breaking Italy out of its uh, institutional uh, blockages. A very important thing in in Berlinguer's formulation of the problem, though, is the idea that the Chilean experience um, try is is that basically the more advanced the reforms you want to do, the bigger the social base they need. Mm-hmm. So so you know there's um, so particularly in kind of left wing socialist opposition to the historic compromise, uh, there's this struggle over the idea that like well if the communists and socialists together had 51% of the vote, then, well, why shouldn't they form a government, right? Whereas, of course, if you add together, you know, the communists and Christian Democrats, you know, just those two parties in the, yeah, 70, um, in 72, that already adds up to, um, um, what would it be? Um, I'm terrible at maths. Like, already, like, 65%, and then 1976, that would be 72%. Yeah. So the idea is that you have huge majorities, including, of course, the main party, basically, of the Catholic middle classes, um, and that that has some legitimacy to um, carry out reforms. And, of course, the, the problem the socialists have with that is that the preceding idea of how the communists might enter government relied on a much more modest kind of uh, compromise, which would in effect be a socialist-led government supported by communist uh, MPs, mm-hmm. which had some vague prospect of eventually reaching uh, 51% if they somehow managed to get social Democrats involved, it was very unlikely, or radicals or something. So yeah, pretty unlikely to arrive at. But yeah, so the Berlinguer idea is very much this... Um, um, yeah, the, the the big majority, and of course the communists initially as a basically um, uh, su- uh, subordinate isn't the quite quite the right word because he didn't use it, but yeah, initially as the junior ally, let's say, right, and with like very limited real involvement, and of course, as we know, the 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 uh, the, the 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 in the uh, after the seventy six elections. The Communist Party at first did non sfiducia, so no no confidence. So just abstained during the confidence vote, and then from uh, March seventy eight, uh, the um, um, the the active vote for the um, Andreotti government, but again without having ministers. I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier, actually, which is, I think it is indeed important that while Berlinguer spells out the historic compromise idea in three articles in Rinascita, which follow the coup in September 73. That's not like the beginning of the relation to the Chilean example, and nor is even the Chilean thing necessarily the, you know, that's not the, um, it's like a certainly concentrates the debate on the issues, but it's, it has other prior sources of inspiration. Mm-hmm. the historic compromise right uh, so because of um in fact purely also because of the the previous italian example of the way in which the socialists had been um brought into the center left uh which itself was also a very slow process uh, uh, so it was it was also a slow process for the socialists to be seen as a legitimate uh partner in government for the christian democrats you know, throughout the 1950s, 
really the idea of the socialists joining the um, Christian Democrats in government wasn't something really considered by Christian Democrats. Um, they looked to the, you know, the, I mean, as it happens, there, there did turn out to be a government you know, passively reliant on the MSI first, and it's really the destruction of that possibility that opens the way to the uh, mm. socialists, of which, of course, Moro had already been a um, advocate starting uh, in around, I think, 1959, and then, of course, in 63, uh, leads a uh, Christian Democrat socialist government. Um, it should also be said that during the centre-left governments that united Christian Democrats and socialists, um, the tone of communist criticism of them was far from uh, this is like the boss's government and the socialists have capitulated to the designs of capitalism. Mm. Mm. Uh, they maintain a much more possibilist idea of what those governments could do. You know, mm. They sort of play more with the idea that basically you know, we'll support them if they do good things. Um, but then um um and of course you know as it as it turned out i mean many of the most important uh, social advances and uh, of the uh, post war period do owe precisely to these uh, governments mm, yeah which of course is very uh um criticized by you know people like uh, poterio Braio and uh um Loto Continua as like the planner state, you know, the mm -hmm. efforts, the efforts to create a uh um a socialism of the Christian Democrats, like a a a a, a, a welfare state some somewhat. Mm -hmm. Um but uh you could also argue it's true, it's true in many uh, European countries that that welfare states are more the product of Christian democracy than of uh parties in the tradition of the labor movement no but you could also argue that the, it's the extra parliamentary uh movements of the workers oh, that are the most directly responsible and that every <laughs> step of the way they're opposed by the christian democracies who given what what you know the fratelli d'italia calls uh, pacification um strip the <laughs> workers of every every possible right um so uh no, no, i mean i agree that that's true and that those welfare states are partly a response to the pressure from below i, I merely mean that the yeah, actual yeah. enactment of the reforms is the product of governments of those parties but i mean for example you know a good example would be something like the workers statute like the 1970 mm. um labor rights um because yeah i mean they they are um or like you know the the national health service and so on. You know these are these are important products of reformism, which are for of course very far short of the demands or hopes of the uh, of the social movements of the time. But but they're also a a departure from the Christian democracy of the nineteen fifties. Mm, for sure. For sure. And you, you mentioned yourself, I mean, the Christian Democrats looked to the fascist MSC before they looked to the Socialist Party as a coalition partner. And they were only prevented in uh, manifesting that through massive uprising in, mm -hmm. in 1960, um, which sent the government into political crisis for three years until um, the center left formula was finally agreed upon. Um and uh 
uh, I think I wonder if you know the the historic compromise, um, which Aldo Moro was amenable to and which was articulated in late 1973 after the coup in Chile by Berlinguer, um, you know, having as you said precedence there wasn't in some sense at least an attempt for a, an evolution similar to that 1963 center-left formula, which was persistent uh, over the next decade. So you have a decade of the center-left formula fighting it out with what was often a monochrome uh, right-wing Christian Democrat faction with some of, you know, a centrist uh, uh, influence. Um, but you know, the, as I think Berlinguer saw it, perhaps, and the, the advocates of the of the uh, historic compromise saw it, this was going to be going one step beyond the center-left formula to produce, you know, something that could be even greater in terms of reforms and in terms of bringing more rights to the Italian uh, people, uh, particularly workers. Um, but it didn't have, or it didn't have an extra parliamentary movement that was autonomous from the formula itself in a way that was non-oppositional. And in fact, it had a much more uh, articulated or or organized extra parliamentary left that fundamentally opposed it, mm-hmm. and so and so in that sense, you don't have you know uh, Piazza del Statuto, you know, and and that kind of movement of of uh, ambiguous rebellion. You have these kind of programmatic organizations of of the extra parliamentary left that are ideologically opposed to um, violently ideologically opposed to this idea of the communist party uh, underwriting a bourgeois state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, of course it's also, yeah, I I think the, the, the fact of the, um, of course, it's also true that, well, I mean, there's, there's two things, one of which is, of course, that the labor movement that in ways actually takes its origin from the 1960 movement against the Temporoni government relying on the MSI. You know, that itself is a big moment of uh, upsurge and re-mobilization, bigger since the resistance and Piazza Statuto. And then, of course, you know, 68, 69, obviously the shop floor movement is much stronger then than in the uh in the right. mid late 70s moment and of course it's also true that the political groups although they're actually also engaged in in crisis in the late 70s are more strongly uh, uh, uh opposed but but then you know i mean it's also the case that the big difference between these moments is that uh the the sort of mid late 60s one the period when there's some center left governments that's the end of the wave of post-war, um, you know, that's the end of the economic miracle. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. period when it's starting to slow down, 
but then it's still like a period of of growth right whereas the the whole historic compromise moment is exactly the period of the of the 73 oil shock and the recession and so on and so the economic bases of the uh in fact there isn't a, an agreement as such but like the, the the economic bases of the communist support for uh the christian democratic uh government in in uh, and its measures or at least allowing it to govern is communist consent to an austerity policy in the name mm -hmm. of combating inflation and it's very dressed up in this language of we need to overcome the class corporatism so we want more than just wage demands but we have to govern in the sense of national uh, responsibility and national solidarity as it was called yeah. uh, with specific reference to the uh the the struggle against terrorism so in of course then we have mm. the Svolta de Leo in 1977 and Luciano Lama who uh who right. says what I just said which mm. Luciano Lama the the GGLA leader ex-communist partisan defends you know, and you know, openly publicly advocates the policy of wage restraint so it's of course you know that obviously provokes uh severe criticism and opposition from the ex-parliamentary left is when he's famously chased away from La Serpienza. Yeah. But what's really interesting too, I guess, in this moment is, is how easily the PC, the PCI falls into that idea of, so, you know, I mean, and the most iconic um, expression of this is the 1976 uh, conference of the, of the party's like economic study center at which the 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 acclaimed uh, speaker is Franco Modigliani, who then explains to them like Nairu and like the, basically the principles of of like a neoliberal approach to stagflation, mm -hmm. which they just you know, swallow basically. Mm. Um, so um, you know, obviously, um, you know, it's not like. Uh, they don't have in mind already at that point in embryo the whole future um course of you know because it's easy to take this moment as like the beginning of the end of the left and also of the beginning of the end of like um you know the beginning of what would become a very long and in fact interminable period of wage restraint um in the name of the uh poor um external competitiveness of the italian economy and the pci and its uh its successors would you know take up this uh language of like the national interest but the class interest and so on so yeah so in of course in the when the mid 70s didn't in mind this is more than a temporary moment but then in retrospect it's also a a, a, a it is a uh a bifurcation you know it is a point when um uh yeah in the name of its but but also i mean it should be said a lot of this is done in the name of tradition like yeah. it's not entirely a shock it's not all totally new you know like in the in the in the um uh in the articles in Rinascita in September, October 73, Berlinguer very explicitly and repeatedly compares the turn to the Svolta di Salerno in 1944, 
so the desire for the communists to be in government together with the Christian Democrats and socialists. Um, and they produce a book in 77 called uh, Historic Compromise by the, uh, I think it's by Editori Riuniti, so like close to the publisher, close to the party. Uh, it's edited by um, uh, Luciano Gruppi, which is called The Historic Compromise. And it's like a collection of... Um, it's like a collection of texts on the idea of democratic alliances. Mm. And it goes back to 1918. So mm. it's like Gramsci, Toliatti. Mm. Mm. So it, 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 it presents the whole thing as just as a continuation. Because, of course, even Toliatti spoke of the need for the party to reach out to Catholics, for instance. Sure, sure. So, so of course, you know, one could question whether... Uh, you know, reaching out to Catholics and, uh, you know, accepting the, uh, for example, in the Constitution, uh, the constitutional process, accepting the role of the Vatican right. by fascism. In, right, in right, right. That was a big one. And, you know, the party uh, in the early post-World War II years has very conservative positions on questions like divorce and never mind uh, mm-hmm. like homosexuality. So, like, um, um, so the, 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 the idea isn't entirely new right it's it's posed as a way of unblocking a situation which the communists had never wanted Mm. which was the situation of the inflation and no um, no so i mean mean, more specifically berlinguer poses the question as well it as if it as if the communists had um net as if the, refu- the 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 impossibility of a communist Christian Democrat government was forced upon the party. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because uh, so they wanted. Yeah. And 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 the way that he puts the the fifty one percent, I think, is also to say that um, there, there's just no point in in keeping the communists out of um, the electoral system right like the parliamentary Mm -hmm. system he's just like this is crazy like if you add up socialists christian democrats and and com and communists you get like the whole population and so why is like this Mm -hmm. small why is this like large block of the population systematically excluded and and so you know he's like we'll bend over backwards to get some access you know um uh, and some some involvement uh in in uh the the top of the of the system and not just within the chamber of deputies um i i think like yeah and the the other the other dynamic that's going on is that with the fazoletti rossi in in fiat in 1973 um and the renewed labor militancy autonomist or i should just say autonomous labor militancy in that year at the time of the contract renewals um the communist party went full counter terror yeah i mean of course fundamental to the strategy and of course uh, in a way a lesson of you know a lesson which could be and because was taken from the the Allende experience is like, okay, so Allende has this whole problem of the mirror. So on the one hand, he's attacked from, you know, the MIR. So on the one hand, he's attacked from the left because he is seen to be suppressing them and, and 
and in fact empowering of course even Pinochet himself before the coup takes place but he doesn't get a handle on the on the on the problem of this like militant left so the idea of the PCI is like well by opposing these groups and actually it's even it has something to do with the example we talked about earlier with Sekia and the ultra left and the resistance right is that the communist party needs to show itself to be hostile to the forces to be further to further to its left to have any chance of alliances to its right yeah. uh, and of course also though it's part of a um a wider discourse of the communist party about the republic itself which is that this is not like the bourgeois state our enemy this is like our republic this is the state that partisans built yeah yep so of course yep. they're unhappy with the way you know for example even in 48 basically like communists were expelled from the uh, police and army there's the you know the famous takeover of the Milan uh, police headquarters so so you know that they, they're not happy with the way that the state machine has as they see it, you know, not been um, uh, changed enough after the resistance. And of course, the Toliati amnesty for fascist crimes plays yeah. its own big part in that. But yeah, they see it, you know, this is our republic whose promise is not yet fulfilled. So, for example, and another example of this would be that the Communist Party actually supports a compulsory uh, military service, mm. right? Because the argument is, um, we don't want it to be self-selecting. Rather, the the military should like reflect the whole population mm, and therefore right. include communists. Mm. And this is what ensures it's like a democratic army and not just like the instrument of a power block or one political faction. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, and uh, and of course, you know, the the obviously the in the in the particularly in the the time of the uh, kidnapping of Aldo Moro, then the Communist Party must pose as the most intransigent defender of of you know no uh, no um, um, no uh, sinking into compromises with terrorists. Uh, where of course the Socialist Party is more possibilist. Uh, of course. Uh, even uh, last week, Giorgia Meloni disgustingly adopted this same expression to refer to the refusal of the state to um, enter into compromises with um, with uh, uh, Alfredo Cospito, the uh, anarchist who has been on hunger strike for uh -huh, four months yeah. in opposition to his solitary confinement in which he's uh, not allowed access to books uh, and is only allowed to speak to another couple of people. So, and Milani issued a communique which used the phrase non scendere a patti, not to, not to descend into agreements. So, mm. um, so yeah, so the, the Communist Party, of course, has this very um, legalist approach as you say, which, which kind of rejects kind of like spectacular militancy uh, in order to show itself to be a uh, responsible partner in the institutions and so on. And then there's the last thing, I think, uh, of course, there's many more elements of the historic compromise, but it's Euro-communism uh, and, and the way that Berlinguer um, had, especially in 68, um, moved toward Soviet dissidents and um, 
well, I would say like Polish and Hungarian dissidents and Slovak uh, and Czech, right? Um, and challenged, increasingly openly challenged uh, the Soviet Union while not really liking the Maoist thing so much, but also seeing Ho Chi Minh's like equidistance between the Soviets and the and the and the Chinese Communist Party as you know something interesting and useful and mm -hmm. developing this idea of a European communism mm -hmm. um between the West and the East right and that plays into how I think the Italian Communist Party starts making appeals like you're talking about of, of national solidarity. And uh, and I think maybe Eurocommunism is used as a as a, a leverage point to to say, look, we're done with the Soviet stuff. We're done with Toliatism. <laughs> and uh, well, maybe they wouldn't say that. That would be more like the Il Manifesto group. But, you know, we're done with the Soviets and we're more like the dissidents and so let us in now, please. <laughs> uh, what's actually uh, uh, interesting with the historic compromise is, of course, in the in the 1973 articles in Renascita, Berlinguer already raises this idea of like this government is like a step towards, you know, sorry, this possible future compromise. And I should emphasize that because it's too easy to like think. Well, in '73, he's saying, "Well, we're going to form this like coalition government." He doesn't say that. It's much more like gradual than yeah. that. So, but the idea is, is yeah, this this Europe is that this is a step towards overcoming block confrontation. Uh, that it will end the barrier that's been put up against the communists, that it will restore this anti-fascist unity of the war period, and also that Europe itself, you know, through this process, that Europe itself will become more autonomous. So he says neither anti-American nor anti-Soviet. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's what you said as well about the uh, the thing with Ho Chi Minh, but he even he even in the articles, he cites the Sino-Soviet split. So he he has this like fundamentally more polycentric idea of the world communist movement after 68, but also because of the Sino-Soviet split, even though he has no sympathies with Maoism, fundamentally the movement just lacks the kind of Soviet leadership it once had, and it becomes more possible to start raising questions. Uh, of course, even in 1976, he gives a famous interview with Gianpaolo Panza, uh, uh, then a, a journalist at, uh, I believe it was for La Repubblica. Panza would later become a famous uh, revisionist historian of the Foibe and such like. No. But yeah, so this article, this interview in 1976 is where uh, Berlinguer says, well, I feel safer under the NATO nuclear umbrella than in mm. the war. So, of mm. course, from an, that might seem, uh, you know, a very symbolic moment, but at the same time, you know, that's not something the communists are really have any chance of changing anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of yeah. questionable. Um, so actually, like, there's this, uh, yeah, so, so like, um, but yeah, I mean, that. so, um, and of course, that's a live question in terms of the de de Christian Democrats. Uh, I own internal debate on whether to uh, 
give anything to the communists in terms of ministries and so on, which is, can we allow communists to be in the government in NATO country? Right. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, public relations exercise. Um, it has to be remembered that in this period, um, members of the Italian Communist Party uh, were, or certainly leads of the Italian Communist Party, were unable to get visas to visit the United States. Mm. Uh, but there's an, uh, Giancarlo Paetta, one of the leaders <laughs> of, the, uh, of the party, writes, the, uh, writes this, um, uh, writes an, an op-ed for the New York Times in, uh, I think it's in 75, where he basically uh, lays out the, the, this idea that basically the communists aren't going to really demand anything or want to do anything. Uh, but there's this like neo-fascist threat, so they just like want to recompose the unity of the war years. Uh, mm. But doesn't dream of mentioning like, you know. I mean, of course, it should also be said that even after the kind of thing like, oh yeah, well, yeah, we're going to um, um, like if you look at the work of a historian like Silvio Pons, I think is very interesting on this. Like e- even after the. Berlinguer saying, well, of course, we wouldn't seek to leave NATO. And actually, even after 81, where with the Yaruzelsky coup, he says the propulsive thrust of 1917 is over. It's not as if the PCI like totally rejects the idea of the Soviet Union having some sort of potential reformability. So, of course, they look very positively on Gorbachev mm-hmm. uh, later. But yeah, I mean, clearly with Eurocommunism, they're like trying to um, to give themselves more, you know, a full freedom of of decision that they're you know not going to be um, told what to do. That they don't see the Soviet model as the one applied to Italy uh, in terms of the form of the state and so on. Um, I had an interesting conversation uh, with um, Egon Krentz. So Egon Krenz was the leader of East Germany at the moment of the fall of the Berlin Wall, or the opening of the Berlin Wall, as he would call it. And some of us went to see him and interview him. And I said to him, oh, well, um, what did you think when um, parties like, you know, the French and Italian Communist parties, the Spanish Communist Party, what did you think when they were defining their you know, national version of communism, precisely in opposition to, and as a critique of states like yours. And he said, well, actually, the thing, the thing is, um, when they did Eurocommunism, when they talked about the national path to communism, we thought it was great. And he's like, so he says, you know, when, um, when Berlinguer came to the world, uh, what's it called, the um, International Forum of Communist and Workers' Parties in East Berlin in 1976, you know, they were fully in favour, you know, the, as in the East Germans looked positively on the strategy because, well, yeah, of course, it's a, a means of advance and, you know, they didn't take it too personally if they were being a bit dissed. But actually, if you look at the way that, if you look at the way that like L'Unita, the Communist Party paper, talks about East Germany in this period, it's far from a, a condemnatory tone. Uh, and, I mean... Uh, hmm. uh, and of course, you know, Krentz and uh, Berlinguer were also good friends because they'd both been very active in the uh, World Federation of Democratic Youth. Um, I mean, the other thing to be said about Eurocommunism is is hmm. that 
it it, it does uh, represent this kind of incipient move towards, and I think it is very incipient, but towards this like search for other uh, interlocutors, political interlocutors from outside of the communist tradition, and this idea of a convergence with European social democracy. Um, so, I mean, also, if you think like by the early 80s, I mean, was the Italian Communist Party more left wing, you know, apart from the symbols and history, was its political agenda more ambitious than that of like Michael Foote's Labour Party in Britain? Mm. I think you pretty much struggle to make that case. So, mm. so I mean, uh, so there is this convergence with, of course, with the SPD and the German Social Democrats right. as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Willie Brandt at that time, right? Was that not Willie Brandt? So? Yeah, I mean, from the from yeah from the from the seventies, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, and again, I mean, they see you know it, it it should be emphasized how incipient this all is, but there is this hope of like yeah, like overcoming the block politics mm-hmm. of Europe asserting itself more as an independent actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it being less that the states of you know, Western Europe are sort of in play between the US and the Soviet Union. And also, mm. of course, it belongs very much to the register of like the peace movement and this like general mm. anti nukes. Yeah, yeah, and detente and so on. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, clearly uh, by you know the period we're talking about, the idea that the Soviet Union represented like the future socialist society has dis- has gone it is mm. no longer but but that's not to say that the the sort of uh ties between the communist party and the soviet union have been reduced to nothing right of course you in the you know one of the most famous examples of of like um uh, uh the italian communist party's uh um sort of um so, sort of um admiration of the soviet union is this thing where I think it's how, how can I not remember what year it is? It's fifty-seven or fifty-eight. It's like the first local elections in Rome after Sputnik flies. There's this really famous picture of this like weirdly futuristic-looking car which has a big Sputnik model on top <laughs> of it. And it's like you know, this is the future of humanity, the glorious Soviet Union. And like even ten years later, that's basically unimaginable. Yeah, and um, of course. You know, the, and I like the way that you kind of uh, uh, described this. Um, the the turn towards austerity comes about at the same time as the um, decision for a historic compromise, which obviously is a long time coming, in a sense, um, despite its controversial nature. Um, and so you have sort of uh, an <laughs> what unlucky turn of events for the for Berlinguer, who I don't think would have embraced neoliberalism had the turn toward austerity not been um, uh, basically, I can't say necessitated, but prompted by the oil crisis and the inflation crisis. Um, so it's not the sort of conspiracy universe of like, the Christian Democrats needed the communists to partner with them to do austerity. And Berlinguer was like in these back meetings, smoking cigars and, you know, basically, <laughs> you know, uh, aligning with the masters of the universe in order to, uh, to mm-hmm. undermine the, the workers. It's much more of just a unlucky turn of events where you have this confluence finally reaching ahead in, um, 
economic crisis hits at the same time, you have this sort of roll it snowballing down the hill of, okay, now the historic compromise in Euro communism equals neoliberalism, which these are, this, this is a turn of events that could have been avoided. Obviously there were things that the communist party could have done to like walk back, you know, some of those commitments that they were making. Um, but it, as it happens, that was not the concatenation of, of, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think the problem is, is that on the one hand, you could say, okay, well, the, the historic compromise and the communist party's role in it, of course, dismantled some of the opposition to the changes that were taking place in terms of like, you know, the austerity and then the, Mm. um, neoliberal turn and so on. But like, I think the problem with that is that ultimately, you know, it's not like we can therefore like go back to that moment or went or what went before, you know, mm. like the 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 kind of changes the Communist Party was having to deal with were very fundamental ones in the, you know, social composition. Of course, a lot of why they act is also because the sort of further left, like strategies or and approaches and even, of course, the actual pressure of the labor movement and so on also mm. Weakened. So, of course, the Communist Party yeah, has some role in that, but they're also, you know, they're, they're like further left critics are not um, successful either. So, so therefore, you know, I mean, it's, um, yeah, uh, you know, obviously, uh, as a historian, the important thing is to to understand why those things intersected uh, rather than look for like just alternative paths, which I think is not very clear that they really existed. Right, right. Well, but, uh, and and you talk about this in in the. Um... The other book, not the not Mussolini's grandchildren, but um, yes, they, uh, took, they Rome. took Rome. Yeah, yeah, and you talk more at length about the historic compromise, and it's a very good uh, uh, retelling of of how things kind of went downhill for the Communist Party, even though they may they managed to be the only ones who sort of kept their noses clean in the whole uh, bribe city scandal. Uh, they were the ones who ended up. Uh, um, well, everybody ended up kind well, of unfortunately, the MSI did as well. Oh, <laughs> so it was the people who were most excluded, uh, from the, the upper echelon of politics that actually were not brought into the uh notorious corruption scandals, um, that rocked the 19 rocked Italy in the early uh early 90s, I guess, um, and brought about the better Lusconi, um post-political phenomenon. So I encourage everybody to pick up your books. Um, uh, those two specifically, I know you have a lot of translations and, and other works that I haven't, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I haven't uh, uh, been able to read yet. Um, but yeah, I, I love your your uh, your work and uh, you always have interesting takes on stuff. And uh, thank you for giving us the, the benefit of your knowledge as I am sort of a, a relative noob in this uh in this area trying to you trying to keep... fantastically well informed <laughs> I've read an enormous amount um so so yeah thank you so much uh for your time and um when's your book coming out um next month next month i'm excited it's um it's not is it pluto press Yes, that's right. Yes, it is Pluto Press. All right. Mussolini's grandchildren, it basically is the it's the story of the rise of Fratelli d'Italia 
And hopefully within the next couple of years, we'll find the next of your books uh, documenting the fall of Fratelli d'Italia. Yeah, I mean, given I did a book only three years ago, which purports to document the rise of the Lega, and now I've got one on the rise of Fratelli d'Italia. So presumably in two years' time, I'll bring out the rise of Casa Pound. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> that, that uh, won't happen. Even in the last one, I actually checked, even in the last one, I did sort of go some way towards saying, you know, Giorgio Milani is going to become more of a thing. Uh, but uh, obviously, I didn't realize the extent to which the uh, Lega support would collapse into hers. But uh, yeah. All right. Thank you so much, everybody, for uh, listening to the interview. Um, I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross. You are listening to David Broder, author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, out soon through Pluto Press. You can pre-order it uh, wherever you get your books. And uh, if you like this episode, you can always sign up at the Patreon for a pittance uh, where you can get the full hour and 45 minute interview and a lot more bonus episodes, data, and other fun stuff. So stick around and um, hope to see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>